In order to truly become part of the global business environment, your business needs to constantly change and adapt to a variety of new constants. Welcome to Leadership Beyond Borders with Kimberly J. Lewis. We will help you navigate these changes on today's program and help you think beyond the boundaries. The opportunities are limitless if you are prepared. Now, here is your host, Kimberly J. Lewis. Hello and welcome to Leadership Beyond Borders. I'm Kimberly Lewis, your host, and this series is in cooperation with Cinda Virtual, which brings you thought leaders and business stories from all over the world. Now, you can learn more about Cinda under www.cinda.org. Now, we don't only bring you thought leaders from all over the world, but we also have listeners from all over the world. So good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you may be listening from today. And if you're new to the series, let me tell you what this series is about. Leadership Beyond Borders is about the impact globalization, digital transition, and the connected world is having on our organizations and what this impact is doing to the kind of leadership we need to drive long-term success in today's economy. In this series, we've talked about everything from business issues such as artificial intelligence and digital transitions to business issues uh, such as gender balance and business values and ethics that may impact your organization, or your individual career. So please listen to us live every Tuesday, 3 p.m. Pacific time. And if you miss us live, don't worry about it because we are on every major podcast platform and you can download us when it's convenient for you. Now, if you're in a leadership position or you aspire for one, please listen to us each week. And Regardless, if your business is international or local, make sure you join us and we will make sure that you take away something useful either for your business or yourself. Now, on to today's episode, and this is the third part of a three-part series we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks. And we've been talking about what leaders can learn from great military leadership lessons that are embedded in our history. And today's leaders certainly face a number of challenges, and they all just did not start with the pandemic. But for hundreds of years, military leaders have been facing even bigger challenges. And we can learn a lot about leadership by studying what they did and studying some of the battles, the historic battles that they were in. And in this series, we've been focusing on the Battle of Gettysburg in the United States. This battle was a key battle in the United States Civil War, which was the war between the states from April 1861 to April 1865. And the Battle of Gettysburg took place from July 1st to July 3rd, 1863, and it was a significant turning point in the war, and we have two experts that will explain to us what leadership lessons we can learn from this battle. Our first guest is Dr. Jeffrey McCausland, and he is the owner of Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy, and since 2000, Dr. Coslin has been conducting numerous executive leadership development workshops and had consulted for a number of leaders in public education, U.S. government institutions, nonprofits, and corporations, both domestically in the U.S. and worldwide. Dr. McCausland is a retired colonel from the U.S. Army and former dean of academics at the U.S. Army War College, and he is a visiting professor of national security at Dickinson College and a national security security consultant for CBS radio and television. He's a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, the U.S. 
Army Airborne and Ranger Schools and the Command and General Staff College at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. And he holds a master's degree and a PhD from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy from Tufts. And he is the co-author of Battle-Tested Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for 21 21st century leaders. And he's the co-author of that book with our second guest, Colonel Tom Fossler. And Colonel Tom Fossler served 30 years in the U.S. Army. He's commanded an infantry platoon in Vietnam War and a mechanized infantry platoon task force in Germany. He's a graduate of the Pennsylvania Military College, Georgia State University, the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College, and the U.S. Army War College. Tom has taught military history, strategy, and leadership at the U.S. Army War College and is a former director of the U.S. Army military. He has television credits that include the History Channel, C-SPAN, and other other well-known channels. So welcome back to the show, gentlemen. It's great to have you back. Kimberly, yeah, it's great to be back with you. Right. So, um, you know, this is the third part of our series. So let's start. In the last part, we left off talking about buy-in and what happens when a subordinate does not buy into a plan but actually opposes it. And this happened in Gettysburg between Longstreet and Lee. And we talked in this last uh, episode about planning. So, um, you know, clearly leaders must have a plan. And you're in your book, you kind of talk about the one-third, two-third process and planning. What is that? Well, Kimberly, let's uh, let let's back up and kind of put it in context from this uh, um, from this thought for the third day of the of the two, uh, of the three day battle. We 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 finished with with the uh, with the second day and the decision making process of both of the major commanders. But on the third day of the battle, the Confederate commander, the Rebel commander, General uh, uh, Robert Edward Lee will uh, uh, meet with his senior subordinate commander, General James Longstreet. And in that, um, Lee is going to impart to Longstreet the plan, which uh, Longstreet is hearing for the first time. And uh, he's not going to agree with it. And basically, Long, uh, Lee orders Longstreet to conduct an attack uh, with uh, his three uh, infantry divisions, two of which had fought the previous day. Longstreet... Uh, disagrees with Lee on this on this plan to conduct another attack. The two divisions he said that uh, he attacked with yesterday were heavily handled, meaning they had taken uh, numerous casualties, no condition to attack again today. So Longstreet, at this point, Lee orders, Longstreet disagrees. So Lee reconsiders, and he says, all right, I'll give you two other, two different divisions. Take them and your one fresh division commanded by General Pickett and conduct the attack. Once again, Longstreet disagrees with the order, and uh, and he tells Lee. He says, "General Lee," he said, "I've been a soldier all my life, and looking across the lines at the uh, objective that he's been ordered by Lee to attack." Uh, Longstreet tells Lee, he says, "There's no fifteen thousand men ever arrayed for battle can carry that position." So once again, Longstreet has disagreed. Once again, uh, Lee considers briefly, but this time admonishes Longstreet that he says, General, we all do our, our duty. And then Longstreet makes a third attempt where he tries to evade responsibility for making the attack and suggests that perhaps a different general should uh, should should plan and, and lead this attack. And so clearly, 
uh, Lee and Longstreet are at odds on, on what should happen. All of this is going to eat up a lot of time mm. for an attack that will be conducted. And so, Jeff, two-thirds, one-third. Yeah, two-thirds, one-third rule to a degree. Basically, what it boils down to, Kimberly, is once you decide when something needs to occur, you as the leader have one-third of the time between that moment and when that's going to start to do your planning. And then two-thirds of the time belongs to your subordinates, your employees, those working for you, for you to explain it to them, for them to do their preparation, explain it to their teams, et cetera, et cetera. Because obviously... The perfect plan is never executed because we're still trying to make it perfect. Mm-hmm. And too often times, leaders will use up all the time and then turn to their team and say, hey, got this complex thing I'd like you to do. Could you start doing it in the next few minutes? And obviously, things will not go very, very well. And, you know, this comes back to something we've talked about in the preceding episodes, Kimberly, and that is the importance of time and how the leader is the one who manages the clock for his or her organization. And that time is the most inelastic of all re- of all resources and oftentimes when you make a decision can be as important as the decision you take doing it in a timely fashion even though you may not think the time the plan is is totally perfected but allowing your team then to fully understand what you want done and then do all their sub- uh, subordinate planning uh, is key and essential for that to be successful and then finally of course when it comes to planning there has to be a lot of flexibility, a lot of initiative, because as we like to say in the military, you know, no plan survives the first round fired. Mm-hmm. Things start changing. The environment starts changing, and you want your team to react. This is why Dwight Eisenhower, as he prepared that unbelievably complex plan for the invasion of Normandy uh, from December of 1943 until June of 1944, would frequently say to his staff, you know, the plan at the end of the day is nothing. Planning is everything because we've thought it all through. We've prepared all the resources. We've briefed everybody. We've thought all the contingencies. But we did it in a timely fashion so our organization could prepare to execute and do so very effectively. Mm-hmm. And, and, Jeffrey, in this planning process, um, how, does a, how does a leader measure risk? I mean, you know, you say you, you're only spending one-third of the time. You have to do it. You give, you know, you move on. How do you how do you measure risk, and how do you know if it's a, a gamble or a calculate a gamble risk or a calculated risk? Yeah, I often like to say, you know, we use the words risk and gamble interchangeably. I think that's impre- imprecise. Mm-hmm. If you and me and Tom were to head off to Vegas and start throwing dice down the table, uh, that's a gamble. That's a mm-hmm. gamble because the outcome is unknown except to God and the dice. A risk is a calculation of gain by also putting certain things, you know, in danger. And what all leaders have to think through is, okay, I'm not going to risk the very existence of my organization for something that is trivial. Obviously, I'm only going to risk that if the potential gains are enormous. And I think, you know, as Tom uh, described what occurred between Longstreet and Lee that fateful morning of July 3rd, he missed a real opportunity and going back to what the mission was and using that to, you know, get buy-in once again from Longstreet by simply saying to Longstreet, look, Pete, and he always called him Pete, look, Pete, the mission is to win the war. That's what we're here to do. We're not here to win a battle. We're here to win this war. And I got to tell you, I think our chances of winning this war are diminishing because we just can't sustain this. We haven't got the resources in the South as compared to the very industrialized North with the bigger, bigger populations. So this is one of our last chances. So I'm just going to take a, you know, a lot more risk right now 
because the potential gains winning the war are, are so enormous. Uh, and by doing so, I think he might have had a greater opportunity of getting buy-in uh, from Longstreet and therefore executing this perhaps a bit more vigorously. Mm-hmm. And and in your book, when, when you're talking about risk, you also talk about the risk and the, the Stockdale paradox. What is, what is that exactly? Well, Jim Stockdale was a very famous naval aviator who was sh- shot down over North Vietnam and ended up being one of the longest held prisoners of war at the Hanoi Hilton. Uh, when he got back, he spent a lot of time at Stanford University, and he coined what became known as the Stockdale Paradox. And when people asked him how he survived this prison camp, and he was there, as I recall, over seven and a half years, he said it boiled down to this. What I had to do was have an absolute ironclad determination that I was going to survive this. That had to be an iron. I am going to accomplish what my mission, which is for me getting out of this and getting home. While at the same time, I had to understand fully how bad my situation was. Now, it's a bit of a, it's obviously a paradox. Mm -hmm. I have to understand those two things are together. He said, the guys who failed in the prison camp, who didn't survive or whatever, were the ones who were really optimistic from the very onset. And they would start off by going, okay, well, here it is in April, May. Well, we'll we'll be home by Christmas. You know, Christmas will be home. Mm -hmm. Christmas would come and they were still there. And over time, that just crushed them. So this combination of an ironclad belief that I'm going to make it while recognizing how tough the situation is. You know, it's funny you bring that up because actually I I was talking to a, a business corporate guy the other day about this same thing. And he said he credited... Uh, the Stockdale paradox with helping him negotiate through the last year. He said, in the last year, he said, I went through my mother having cancer and getting my team through COVID. But by using that thinking about, I'm going to get through this while still understanding how bad it was, got me through it. And he likes, he says, now I refer to myself as a Stockdale optimist. <laughs> That's interesting. Oh wow! So I mean, this this is this is a you know this is some heavy things coming into the to the last um, you know the last part of this battle, and um, I think we're, we're going to take a break um, in a minute. And what I'd like to do, Tom and Jeffrey, is when we come back, I'd like to kind of walk us towards you know. Accumulation and towards the end, and what lessons we can learn. You know, you know they're calculating these risks. Um, they had this situation on the end of the second day, and what happens after that? You know, and and how does it go forward? And what kind of lessons can we learn for that? So we're going to take a short break now. And for our listeners, we are talking to Dr. Jeffrey McCausland, and he is the owner of Six Diamond Leadership and Strategy. And Dr. McCausland is a retired colonel from the U.S. Army and former dean of academics at the U.S. Army War College. He's a visiting professor of national security at Dickinson's College and national security consultant for CBS Radio and Television. And he is the co-author of Battle Tested, Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for the 21st Century Leaders with our second guest, Colonel Tom Fossler. And... um, Colonel Fossler has served 30 years in the U.S. Army. He commanded infantry platoons in Vietnam and a mechanicized infantry platoon task force in Germany. And he also has a number of television credits on the History Channel. Now, if you'd like to reach out to Jeffrey and Diamond Six Leadership, Diamond Six Leadership is on Facebook and it is on LinkedIn as well as on Twitter. And that's 
Diamond Six as six in the number leadership. And also they have their website at www.diamond6leadership.com. And Jeffrey's also on LinkedIn. And you can reach him under Jeffrey McCausland and on Twitter under M M C C A U S L J. And with that, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. It is possible to have the career you want. Those who know how to manage their careers advance more quickly and have more opportunities. Listen for Career Central with host Lorraine Beeman to discover how to be successful in your current job or move into a new one. Tune in Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Tune in for And Security for All, hosted by Kim Hakem. Each week, we look into a different aspect of cybersecurity, which is important to know for anyone who is involved with the Internet daily, which is probably all of us. We take the technical jargon and make it easier to understand while helping you to identify weaknesses and issues in your own cybersecurity and fix them now. And Security for All is broadcast live every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time, on the Voice America Business Channel. You are listening to Leadership Beyond Borders. Do you have a question or comment about our show? Please send an email to leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. Again, that's leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. Now back to this week's program. Welcome back to Leadership Beyond Borders on Voice America's business channel. And I'm Kimberly Lewis, your host. And today we're, we're talking with, with two military leaders about what we can learn about leadership from some of the historical battles that we study. And we're looking at the Battle of Gettysburg. And we're, our two guests today are Dr. Jeffrey McCausland, and he is the owner of Six Diamond Leadership and Strategy. And he is a retired colonel from the U.S. Army and former dean academics at the U.S. Army War College. And he is co-author of Battle Tested, Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for the 21st Century, with our second guest, Colonel Tom Fossler. And he has also commanded infantry platoons in Vietnam, as well in, in Germany, and has many television credits, including on the History Channel. So, gentlemen, before, before we... Uh, took the break. We were talking about, you know, the second day and the, and the disagreement between um, uh, the disagreement between Lee and Longstreet and the second day. And, you know, this goes on and then we get to the third day of the battle and that was the last day. So let's move on, Tom, to the end of the battle. Um, how did it end and what happened? Well, well, Kimberly, as uh, as Longstreet had predicted, to Lee, the 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 attack that uh, is going to be made by the Confederates on the third day into the center of the of the of their enemy's defensive line is going to fail. It's going to fail big time, and, uh, and and the basically the attack we call it or Pickett's Charge in honor of one of the Confederate generals who who physically led the attack. But Pickett's charge is going to fail, is going to be defeated. And for all practical purposes, that ends the fighting. There's some small skirmishing on other parts of the battlefield for the remainder of the day. But that 
was basically the end of the three-day battle. The next day, the 4th of July, Independence Day in the U.S., uh, both armies lay in place. Each expects the other to attack. Um, and Lee has a chance to assess the fact that uh, the major victory he sought on northern soil over his opponent uh, is not going to be achieved. And they did achieve some some other objectives. Uh, they had restocked the pantry, if you will, to feed the army and the people over the coming winter. Uh, 24,000 head of cattle, 22,000 head of sheep, thousands or hundreds of wagons with food and forage will be sent south across the Potomac into uh, uh, um, the Confederate Virginia, state of Virginia. Uh, but the, the, the major objective will not be realized, and it's going to cost Lee one of every three soldiers wow. as a casualty. Killed, wounded, captured, or missing, one of every three Confederate soldiers that, that come across the Potomac River into Pennsylvania uh, will not leave here. They mm-hmm. will stay in Pennsylvania uh, as a casualty. Mm-hmm. And that that's pretty heavy responsibility for a leader. So, um, you know, as this happens in the South Louis, what was the reaction from Lee in the aftermath of the battle? Well, Lee is uh, perhaps number one, perhaps his best generalship in the, in the battle is getting his army out of here, out of Gettysburg, out of Pennsylvania, uh, back down into Virginia. Uh, in order to fight it another day and another day and another day for another year and a half. Uh, but he also realizes the extent of the defeat, and he will actually send a letter of resignation to Confederate President Jefferson Davis, saying that uh, this defeat and the number of casualties is all his fault, all my fault, he says. Therefore, perhaps you need a better a better general in charge. And President Davis allegedly uh, replies, now, please tell me, General, where will I find a general better than you are? And, mm-hmm. and so, so that was his reaction. And Lee will continue to soldier on uh, in his position. Mm-hmm. So he does take full responsibility. Jeffrey, um, is that, you know, we see that sometimes in leadership. We don't see that sometimes in leadership. What What's your comment on that? Well, my comment would be, I think we unfortunately see that too infrequently, and we mm-hmm. oftentimes use the words authority and responsibility interchangeably, and again, I think that's imprecise. As we move up to higher and higher positions in any organization, we have to give authority to others. There's no way we can do everything. The responsibility for overall success or failure of the organization rests with us. And so, you know, the, the soldiers, as they're returning, those who survive that attack, Lee is on a horse there at the center of the Confederate line after Pickett's charge. And he will say to them, as they come up, the soldiers actually say, hey, let's, sir, let's reaffirm the line. We'll attack again and we'll take that, we'll take that position this time. And he kept saying over and over, no, this is all my fault and you have to help me. And as Tom said, he offers his resignation. Uh, from my research, I have not been able, and Tom and I have discussed this, find any place where he did not maintain that for the rest of his life. And there were numerous people that he could have blamed. He could have blamed uh, Hill for getting involved in the battle before the whole army was there, Ewell for not attacking vigorously on the first day, Stuart for being gone and not arriving until the evening the second day, or Longstreet for kind of slow rolling the boss and not moving on. But Lee accepted full responsibility. This is mine. It's my organization. And therefore, 
it belongs to me. And, you know, you and I were talking about this. I thought it interesting, probably the first time anybody has compared Robert E. Lee and, and Diane von Furstenberg, but mm-hmm. uh, she recently came out with a fascinating book about her experience as a corporate leader in fashion, and then and the, a book particularly funny focused on uh, women in leadership. And in that particular book, which is entitled Own It, she talks about the fact that if you're in charge of the organization, responsibility rests with you. Yes, will you hold others accountable if, in fact, they fail? Sure you will. But if you have somebody who tries something in the organization, shows them initiative, and, and they really tried to do their very best and it didn't work, well, that's when you become the heat shield and you say, no, it's my team. I'll take the hit. And that's certainly what Robert E. Lee did uh, following this attack. Mm-hmm. And, and Diane says that also in her book. And let me ask you this, Jeff. Why? You made the comment that unfortunately we don't see this all the time, and we can think of some historical events where we haven't seen this. Okay, you know, especially in the financial crisis and some other right. issues. Why do you think we've we fostered a culture that you don't take that responsibility? Or why do you think that is? Yeah, I think unfortunately, I think too much in the corporate we fostered that particular culture where leaders are unwilling to admit they made a mistake. They think it throws a sign of weakness, which I think is unfortunate. They may be worried about their particular position, you know, and quite candidly, let's be honest, in too many corporate organizations around the world, uh, when something goes wrong, I often say the problem is then most people in the corporation start thinking about a, bu- a bus. Mm. Why do they start thinking about a bus? Because everybody starts wondering who's the boss going to throw under the bus and blame <laughs> for what just happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. So I mean, at the so, you know coming back to this battle, and so Lee takes responsibility, and and the North wins. Um, so I mean, in my eyes, I would say, well, that was that was success for the North. But but there seemed to be some question that you know that Lincoln didn't really consider it successful. And I, that would bring me to the question: Is was it successful? What did Lincoln think? And how how does a leader define success? That would be a question. Well, for for President Lincoln, understand we have to understand that uh, uh, spending his his days during the battle in the Army Telegraph office. He is receiving direct reports from the field from his senior commander, General Meade, as to what's going on. Mm-hmm. And, and so he is pretty well up to speed. He knows that uh, Lee has been defeated. He knows on July 4th that Lee's organizes his troops for a withdrawal from, from uh, Gettysburg, from Pennsylvania. So he knows all this. And Lincoln is very anxious, very anxious that... General Meade, his commander, will maintain contact with Lee's army and defeat it before it can get away, before it can get across the Potomac back into Virginia. But uh, as uh, as, as things eventuate, uh, Meade does not defeat Lee's army on this side of the on the north side of the Potomac River. They do get across as of the 14th of July, and Lincoln is just absolutely upset that Lee's army has got away, that Meade had Lee's army in his hands, and all he had to do was close his fingers, and they would have had them. Mm-hmm. So Lincoln was extremely, extremely upset. This will lead him to uh, write a letter um, uh, to General Meade and and speaking very forcefully about it, uh, and 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 his uh, Lincoln's um, disappointment. Mm-hmm. Uh, with with the results, uh, that letter 
Lincoln will reconsider and not send it, but we have uh, we have access to that letter and it reflects his his view of the situation. Mm-hmm. And 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 Jeffrey, this 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 you know this feeling that Lincoln had, and you know his disappointment in Meade. Um, you know, is there anything underlying that that maybe the two of them didn't define dis- to what success would look like, or you know, how does a leader define and communicate success? Well, that's exactly right. I think one of the problems here is, of course, don't forget that uh, Lincoln will only put. Meade in command about two days before the battle starts. So by the 4th of July, Meade has not even been in command a week. Mm. So how much opportunity has he had to interact with him as the overall commander is limited and certainly only by distance by telegraph. But certainly from Meade's standpoint, he's feeling pretty good. Uh, He has just, you know, beaten the heavyweight champion of the world who's thumped a whole bunch of Union generals. So he tells the president, you know, I have defended the nation from invasion. And in the letter Tom mentions, Lincoln will write, my dear general, you can't defend the nation. It's one nation. That's the mission. And you let Bobby Lee get away and missed an opportunity to protect, uh, protect, uh, to potentially uh, uh, end the war. You know, it's funny, Diane, the other day, a friend sent me a copy of this new book by Jim Collins called B2.0. And as you are one to do, you open a book and start reading somewhere to, to see what's going on and how the book is. I'm not kidding. I opened the book and the first paragraph I read was Jim Collins talking about this precise point at Gettysburg. And he said the lesson for leaders of whatever corporate entity is already always talk about the mission. Keep the first thing, the first thing, and make sure everybody understands it. And then last but not least, you know, we spend an awful lot of time doing our plans. How much time do we spend thinking about, well, what do we do if this actually works? You know, we spend a lot of time thinking, what are we going to do if this fails? Or do we have a fallback or an alternative path or whatever? But what do we do if it works? How do we exploit a success? Whether that's a military success or a corporate success. And he talks about Meade's failure to exploit a success as being a critical, uh, a critical lesson for leaders of today. Mm-hmm. And I think you know what you said as far as you know being clear on the mission and the process. I mean, isn't that where we see kind of corporates uh, mess up from time to time? Is that you know it, the the what's defined as success or what might happen after one is not cascaded all the way down the, the, through the through the corporation or through you know through the levels. Yeah, and we have to calculate how do we measure success. We have to do that in, in multiple ways, and oftentimes it's quite different. Some could say, "Well, it's just profit and loss." Well, that's mm-hmm. that's that's good, but we also know you know market share is important. We also know are we being innovative, or are we sort of living in a in an industry that's about to die off? So our calculation of success in the corporate world, in some ways, is is more difficult, or more complex, or more nuanced. Than a military commander, his or her measure of success is, of course, the direct defeat of their adversary. Mm-hmm. And so it perhaps is even more complicated, but then even more important for the leader to sit down, look at his or her mission statement, use that as a guideline and talk to their organization about this is how we define success. And when this particular plan works, this is how we're going to exploit it consistent with that mission. Mm-hmm. And and once that's done, then Jeffrey and Tom were kind of in, using Gettysburg were at the end of everything. Um, you know, you, you've defined success, or you you've at least uh, agreed on it. And then it's up to the leader to have a, a vision to going forward. Okay, so that's what I'd like. We're going to take a short break, and I'd like to talk about what happens at the end. 
and um, you know how you then bring your teams to a vision and and move them on and put this behind you. So we're going to take a short break now. And for our listeners, we are talking with Dr. Jeffrey McCausland, and he is the owner of Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy. And Dr. McCausland is a retired colonel from the U.S. Army and former dean of academics at the U.S. Army War College. He's a visiting professor of national security at Dixon College and a national security consultant for CBS Radio and Television. And he is the co-author of Battle-Tested Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for the 21st Century Leaders with our second guest, Colonel Tom Fossler, who served 30 years in the U.S. Army. He's commanded infantry platoons in Vietnam and in Germany, and he has a number of television credits behind him, including on the History Channel. And with this story, this uh, podcast is brought to you by Cinda, and uh, Cinda is one of Europe's largest non-profit associations supporting small and medium businesses throughout Europe. Now, if you'd like to get a hold of our guests today, you can get hold of Jeff and Tom at Diamond Six Leadership. And that's Diamond Six with the number six leadership, which is on Facebook, on LinkedIn, and on Twitter. And if you'd like to get hold of Jeffrey, you can go to Jeffrey McCausland on LinkedIn and on Twitter under MCCAUSLJ. And with that, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Klass. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The soul of enterprise is heard live every Friday at noon Pacific time, 3 p.m. Eastern time on the Voice America Influencers Channel with the Replay on Fridays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. You are listening to Leadership Beyond Borders. Do you have a question or comment about our show? Please send an email to leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. Again, that's leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. Now back to this week's program. Welcome back to Leadership Beyond Borders on Voice America's business channel. And this is the last part of our three-part series. And we've been talking with two experts on military leadership, Dr. Jeffrey D. McCausland from Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy and Colonel Tom Fossler, who is a retired U.S. Army colonel. And we've been talking with you guys for three series now and, and just fascinating stuff on learning you know, what we can learn from leadership, from studying uh, one of the U.S.'s most famous battles, Gettysburg. And so we're, we're at the end of the war now, gentlemen. And so, you know, um, uh, Tom, you told us kind of, you know, that 
Lincoln was a little bit disappointed with Meade, but now he's got to bring everything forward and you have to go forward and leaders have to go forward. So, Jeffrey, what, what happens now? What does Lincoln do now? What happens now, Kimberly, of course, is the decision is made to create a national cemetery at Gaysburg. And this is the first national military cemetery based on the large number of casualties. And furthermore, the, the, the governor of Pennsylvania decides to have a ceremony on the 19th of November, uh, 1863 to inaugurate that particular cemetery. It's interesting, Abraham Lincoln receives his invitation to make a few appropriate remarks about 10 days prior to the actual speech. The principal speaker in many ways is a, a political opponent of Abraham Lincoln, a guy named Edward Everett, who is a renowned national order who had been uh, a candidate for the vice presidency on the Union Party ticket in 1860 that ran against Lincoln. And he is actually invited in September to give the speech and actually talks to the organizing people about extending the time uh, to give him more time to prepare the speech. Uh, Lincoln arrives over the objections of his spouse, who did not want him to go to Gettysburg. He was not the principal speaker, number one. Number two, uh, their one surviving son at home was very ill. Uh, Tad and, and uh, Mrs. Lincoln thought the child might die. We forget that the Lincolns will lose a child in February of 1862 uh, to a fever. But over all those objections, Lincoln goes. Why does he go? Well, I think for a couple of reasons. One is uh, he understands the three laws of politics, which are get elected, get reelected, and don't forget rules one and two. So that's part of his personal <laughs> mission. And he realizes the principal stakeholders for his organization, the United States, will all be at Gettysburg. All the union governors, all the senators from all the union states, most of the congressmen, the press will be there and covering this nationally. So if there's a moment for him to kind of politic and bring things together, oh, by the way, my reelection is November of 1864, only a scant year ahead. This is it, number one. And number two, if I want to describe an expanded vision for the organization, uh, this is the moment. Mm-hmm. And 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 uh, so he, you know, he notices how he knows how important this is. Okay, and he knows this is important to to give the vision to the country and give the vision to just his troops. Um, so, you know, how does he do that? I mean, you know, how do you how does a leader then say, okay, communicate that vision? How did he go about doing that, and how important was that? Yeah, it was critically important for the conduct of the war. Uh, because he reorganized this speech in a fashion that any leader can use as an outline when they're talking to their organization about their vision and where they see the organization going. If you take the Gaysburg Address, 272 words takes two and a half minutes to say. You can break it up into three parts. Where have we been four score and seven years ago? If you do the math on that, it takes you back to 1776 and the signing of the Declaration of Independence, which Lincoln thought was the foundational document for the country, we hold these truths to be self-evident. <clears throat> All men are created equal. Second part, where are we right? Where are we now? Where have we been? Where are we now? Where are we now? Speech says we're in on the great battlefield of this war. It's right and proper. We should be here to do this. And then the third part, where are we going? Where are we going? Well, we're going to a new birth of freedom. That's how the speech wraps up. Up until that point, the vision for the war had been preserving the Union. That's what Lincoln talked about in his first inaugural address. And in fact, in correspondence with a newspaper editor at the time, he said, if I can preserve the Union and free all the slaves, I'll do that. 
If I can preserve the union and free some and leave some in bondage, I'll do that. If I can preserve the union and free none of them, I'll do that. My job is to preserve the union. And even the Emancipation Proclamation only frees the slaves in the states under rebellion. doesn't affect slavery in places like uh, West Virginia, Maryland, Kentucky, Missouri, Delaware, places like that. So he gives this pick your speech and cast a new vision. And by concluding that with the new birth of freedom, what I like to say, as the 15,000 people arrive, and that's what the estimate of the crowd were, uh, when they arrived there and walked in the cemetery, the vision of the future was preserving the union. When they left, it was preserving the union, but that now is inextricably linked to ending slavery. And that's the platform that Lincoln will run on in 1864, despite the fact that many senior Republican leaders uh, told him to you know, drop this ending slavery thing because it will not be helpful politically. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And but your point on the speech is very simple, okay? And that could, as you said, it could be used by any Anybody. leadership, you know, to, you know where we have been, where we are, and where we're going, okay? Um, so when we when we put all this together, you know, there, there's so many lessons here. Um, first, quick, you know, question before I move on to what you each think are the biggest lessons you can learn here. Um, would you kind of summarize that you think that the, the the South lost because of leadership issues, or is it a combination of things? Uh, well, Kimberly, I, I don't know that it's that it's because of, of leadership issues. Um, they started out; the South started out uh, the war, this four-year war. I'm going to say the first uh, first uh, 18 months, 24 months of the war, they had better leadership than the than their their opponent than the than the Northern Army. And uh, but the the problem was attrition affected mm. that assembly of leadership. Number one was attrition just wore down those 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 perhaps, if you will, better leaders uh, to come to a more equal status with their with their opposition. But the second thing is the opposition itself changes, and that they uh, evolve into a learning organization. They learn how to be better. Their leaders learn how to be better leaders. And that transition point just happened, I believe, having studied it many years, happens at Gettysburg, where Lee overestimates the residual capability of his army and underestimates the leadership capability of his opponent. Mm-hmm. And the result is going to be a defeat. Mm-hmm. And that, that's that's very impactful. And that's what you see a lot of times in teams when the teams are able to develop and and learn from each other. Then the the performance increases you know, quite a bit. So um, I think that's an impa- impactful takeaway and observation, Tom. And um, let me ask you both. You know, from this this whole. Battle. What do you think, Jeffrey, is the the most important leadership lesson we could take away from this? Well, before I get there, let me get a final comment on what Tom just said, which I totally agree with. But you know mm-hmm. what I often find working with corporations is when the economy gets bad, when they have a setback economically, the first thing their organizations look to cut is the development of their team. Mm. So they'll spend more money on capacity or on equipment or whatever, but they'll cut back on development. And I actually think that's totally mistaken. And I've seen studies that said, you know, if you have $1 left to invest in your company, 
the most return on that dollar is investing in the development of your workforce. And I think that's demonstrated in a way, metaphorically, by what Tom just said about Gettysburg. But in terms of what's the most important thing I take from this battle, well, first, I would take the following, that effective leaders in whatever ilk, 21st century, 19th century, have to adapt, innovate, and overcome based on an evolving environment. And now you have to create a climate in which their team is, is willing and able to innovate and demonstrate initiative. And then second point, if I can take a second one, is they have to manage time and they have to remember that when they make a decision is as, as important or more important than the decision they take. Also, that includes the question of timing, when to do that. Mm-hmm. And Lincoln's speech at Gettysburg is a classic example of timing. That mm-hmm. was the moment to describe a new vision. Mm-hmm. Important points there, Jeffrey. Thank you. And Tom, what about you? You know, well, you, yeah. yeah. I believe uh, uh, this battle, or, or so many of the other battles that I have studied, that um, it's important that we study study the past to learn from the past to prepare for the future, for the present and the future. And you know, as a as a retired professional soldier, I look to wartime leaders for inspiration. And, and men like Winston Churchill, who said in reference to history that you cannot know where you're going until you know where you've been. And so I think uh, from a leadership standpoint, that gets the bottom line for me is, uh, is learn from the past, prepare for the future, remembering that we are people leading people. Mm-hmm. And um, last last comment for our listeners um, from each of you. If you had one one you know word of advice for the leaders today, because we've you know we're we're in a crisis now. We're in this pandemic. We've all had to evolve, as you said, Jeffrey, with the situation. Um, if you had one word of advice, Jeffrey, for the leaders today to deal with the situation today, what would that be? We back on our first session. You know, we talked about what is a crisis because I think metaphorically. They were in a crisis at Gettysburg, and as you said, we're in a crisis today, and actually I think we're in three crises. One is the pandemic, one is a question of social justice and faith in institutions, mm-hmm. and the third one is economic. Uh, but you know that, that Chinese symbol for crisis brings together, and we talked about it uh, back then, two different things, and that's danger and opportunity. So leaders have to be conscious of the dangers, back to the Stockdale paradox, how really bad are things? But they have to keep a lot of that to themselves and be cautiously optimistic to their organization. At the same time, within that danger, there are opportunities. We all know right now, for example, that we're not going back to December 1st, 2019. Mm -hmm. So what are the opportunities we have for our particular company, our particular corporation, coming out of this? And have I built a team that has the initiative to take advantage of that? Am I a learning organization, as Tom described about the Union Army, to take advantage of that and then come out of this stronger than I was in March of 2020? Mm-hmm. Great, great advice for our leaders. And Tom, if you had one piece of advice for the leaders, what would that be from you? I think all of us uh, strive to uh, uh, create uh, and operate a high-performing, survivable, and sustainable organization over time. Uh, to achieve that, that's done through leadership. That's through investing in your people. That is creating the next generation of leadership for the organization to ensure the organization is survivable, is sustainable over time. 
Okay, great. Well, thank you. This has been a great three series. And for our listeners, if you're just coming on this series, please go back. We have part one, part two, and part three. Um, incredible advice from our two guests. And you've been listening to Dr. Jeffrey D. McCausland, and he is the owner of Six Diamond Leadership and Strategy. And he has been conducting numerous executive leadership development workshops and consulted for leaders in public education, governmental institutions, nonprofits, and corporates all over the world. Dr. McCausland is a retired colonel from the U.S. Army and former dean of academics at the U.S. Army War College. He's also a visiting professor of national security at Dickinson College and a national security consultant for CBS radio and television. And he is the co-author of Battle Tested, Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for 21st Century Leaders. And the second guest has been the co-author of that book, Colonel Tom Fossler, who served 30 years in the U.S. Army. He commanded infantry platoons in Vietnam and in Germany. He's a graduate of Pennsylvania Military College, Georgia State University, and the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College and the U.S. Army War College. Tom also has a number of, of television credits under his belt with the History Channel and C-SPAN and other networks. And the book, Battle Tested, Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for 21st Centuries, I highly recommend. Um, one of the best leadership books I have ever read. So please, it's on Amazon, download it, order it. And if you'd like to learn more about Six Diamond, Diamond Six Leadership, please go to Facebook on Diamond Six Leadership. Diamond Six Leadership in Strategy is also on LinkedIn. It's on Twitter under D6 Leadership and on Instagram under D6 Leadership. So please look them up. They have some fantastic programs. And if you'd like to reach out to Jeffrey, he is on LinkedIn under Jeffrey McCausland. And he is also on Twitter under MCCAUSLJ. So... Jeffrey and Tom, this has been absolutely a fantastic series. Thank you so much for taking all the time to be with us and share your insights with our guests. Well, it's our pleasure to be with you and uh, and and your, your great audience out there, and we wish them every success. Yeah, thank you. And for our listeners, please tune in to us every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Pacific time. And please remember that this broadcast is also brought to you by CINDA. CINDA is one of Europe's largest nonprofit organizations helping support SMBs, small and medium businesses in Europe, and helping them get digital so that they can really be successful in these new difficult times. So if you want to learn more about CINDA, go to www.cinda.org. And I'm Kimberly Lewis, your host. And thank you so much for listening. And don't forget to tune in again next week. Goodbye. Thank you for joining us on Leadership Beyond Borders. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 3 p.m. U.S. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Kimberly J. Lewis, on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a great week.